I sat down for an extended conversation with veteran venture capitalist Ansaf Karim. We covered the zero to one journey, the common mistakes CC's founders make when pitching investors, and the wisdom VCs can impart to help founders succeed. I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. The founder journey begins at what we call zero. You have no product or service, you have no revenue, and sometimes you don't even have an idea yet, but you know you want to create something. You've identified a need in the world, a gap in the status quo, and you are the person to fill it. But there's a long journey ahead to get to what we call one. One can mean different things for different founders. For some, it's raising your first round of capital. For others, it's designing the first prototype of your idea. But for everyone, going from zero to one is the formidable task of testing whether or not your idea is real. To help us dive into the founder journey from zero to one is veteran venture capitalist Ansaf Karim. Great. Hey, Jackson. It's great to be back on the pod. Thanks for having me. I'm Ansaf Kareem. I'm the founder and managing partner of Latitude Capital. Ansaf, really excited to have you back on the show. Thanks for taking the time. Of course. Thanks for having me. Let's jump in. Ansaf, we're talking about the zero to one journey for founders. So what would you say are the three most important things a founder can do today to get from zero to one? Yeah, I think there's sort of uh, a couple of key things that I always talk to entrepreneurs about who are going from that sort of formation stage to seed stage, series A and beyond. The first one is fundamentally to validate. And what I mean by validate is that oftentimes in the ecosystem, we can get hung up on words like MVP, product market fit, et cetera. But really fundamentally, what you're trying to figure out is that is there a real pull for your concept and your product in the market? And so for B2B companies, you know, the path for this can look like design partnerships with other larger companies or from your own marketing and outbound, but really trying to understand, are there customers out there who are willing to pay for this product? Um, and is there an opportunity for me to continue to grow into that? And there's quantitative things you can look for, things like, are there conversion from these design partners to full paying customers? Or are the number of users in an organization increasing on my platform? But a lot of this can also be qualitative. Is there questions like, or are you hearing things from your customers like, you know, this is a lifesaver, or am I transforming fundamentally the way my customers are working on a product? Uh, or am I making my customer look good to their boss? There's a lot of qualitative things that go into this idea of validation, but finding your path to validating your fundamental problem statement is step one for any company trying to go on that zero to one journey. I think the second thing that I would say is uh, be an evangelist. I think for a lot of founders, um, you know, you have to be a lifelong evangelist for your company. And that means everything from being an evangelist to potential people you're going to be hiring to your customers um, and fundamentally to the broader uh, market that you're trying to tackle. And I think a lot of founders that I work with, oftentimes they're more technical or product-driven founders. They feel like they can just sort of be heads down, focused on building a phenomenal product. Maybe they'll hire somebody eventually to be a marketer or go-to-market person for them. But I think that's actually a wrong way to think about it in that zero-to-one phase. You really have to be on the customer calls yourself. You really have to be taking a lot of that feedback and putting it back into your product strategy and marketing strategy yourself and really being out there and sometimes being uncomfortable or maybe have some discomfort in that, um, but really pushing yourself to make sure that you are the number one evangelist for your company as you scale from that zero to one phase. And then the third thing I just say is uh, really building out your strong founding team. And uh, obviously, hopefully, oftentimes people have one or two founders with them, maybe three, but really that sort of employee number three to 10 is really important. I think it creates a lot of fundamental uh, components of how quickly you can ship product, the capacity and, and talents that you have in-house to be able to scale into different areas like marketing, go-to-market, engineering, et cetera, is really defined by some of those early hires. 
And I think it also speaks a lot to your ability to sell your vision and can you get enough followership for the idea that you're building. And so there's a lot of proof in the pudding in terms of the people you bring on in the early stages of your company who are really taking the highest risk of any time with that company when they are coming to join you. And so there's a lot of signal in, in your founding team. And so focusing on that, I think, is a really important thing for founders to, to think about. You mentioned the top three most important things a founder can do today to start the journey from zero to one. How about from an investor's perspective? What are the top three wisdoms you as an investor can impart to a founder today who's on that zero to one journey? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. I think, uh, you know, finding a good founding partner from the investor side on that zero to one journey, I think is critical for any entrepreneur. Um, the first thing I'd say for, for those investors to impart and work with their entrepreneurs on and, and, and imbue that relationship is really empathy. I think starting anything, let alone a startup, is extremely difficult and a courageous task. And uh, fundamentally, that person is putting themselves out there as an entrepreneur to go pursue that. And so as a, as a real partner to them, leading with empathy and understanding of all that comes with that, uh, the pressure, the stress, as well as the ups and downs, and being a steady hand as a venture investor alongside that is really important. And that doesn't mean to be blind to obstacles or to be blind to potential problems or issues that might be arising. It's really to be an objective hand in those conversations while understanding the context that those individual humans are going through as they try to build these companies. And and I think more often than not, unfortunately, I think many investors oftentimes overlook that. So I'd say that's sort of Number one, as I think about my own partnerships with founders at that zero to one stage. The second thing is really a little more tactical. It's really thinking through what I call signals of momentum. And so, you know, some of these things are oftentimes hard to parse out in the early stage. You know, you might have a handful of design partners, you're getting your early customers, really trying to understand how do we validate this problem and how do we validate our solution and really being a partner and a sounding board for entrepreneurs as they try to figure out where is their real signal and all this stuff that they are actually executing against. And oftentimes that means hearing and listening to founders as they talk about some of the successes they're feeling with their potential customers or their active customers and really trying to parse through, okay, what are the things that we're learning that can actually be applicable more widely across other customers or other places and really drives some signal into what I, again, call momentum and growth in the company. The flip of that is also identifying blind spots. So there might be things in those same conversations that come up, which a founder who's in the weeds might miss, but as you as a, a little bit more removed listener, it can help them understand hey, some customers might care a lot more about security than you thought or might care more about privacy or implementation timelines and things like that that might seem uh, small to the entrepreneur but could be really big as you think about continuing to grow the company and validating the, the product. So that's the second component. And then the third one I'd really think about is, is dreaming the upside. I think in venture fundamentally, especially at the early stages, you're really trying to believe and understand how this company can become really large. And I think a lot of sometimes investors make a mistake of coming into this with a pure um, financial mindset in the sense of downside protection and thinking about what could go wrong. And those are obviously important. You have to understand the potential headwinds of a company, the obstacles, what could inhibit growth in the future. But uh, I learned from one of my uh, mentors in the space who I remember told me back in the 90s, he met Elon Musk uh, on one of his first companies. And, uh, you know, back then in his pattern recognition, most founders look like gray haired CEOs who develop, you know, uh, semiconductor companies and were in their 40s, 50s and 60s. And here was this 25 year old kid with limited experience pitching to him on Sand Hill Road. Um, and really for him, the signal and hindsight was that how did this kid who was 
a hustler and made his way into the right meeting and had developed real customers and was on his path to success um, end up in his room. There was signal in that moment itself, but because he was so focused more on pattern recognition, he ended up missing some of that. And so part of this whole dreaming of the upside, I think, is really paying attention to cues and signals that can help you understand where these companies can go that are potentially not obvious uh, in the early days. So those are some of the things that I think about. PitchBook's Q3 report reveals a three-year low for deals. We talk about a lot on our show, but what's your forecast for venture deal markets? Have we finally hit the bottom, or do you think we'll continue to see declines through the end of the year? It's a good question. Look, I think it's a fool's errand to probably call a, a full bottom at any point in any market. But, um, you know, if you look at some of the data, historically, you know, I was looking at uh, unicorn creation as one metric. I think we hit somewhere in the dozen unicorns created this quarter still in this ecosystem, and that kind of matches to where we were uh, 10 years ago, believe it or not. And so I think if you think about um, sort of maybe where we are from a deal count perspective or from types of companies that are on a growth trajectory, net new creation in that space, it feels like we are at a at a more steady state uh, place just if you look at historicals, maybe even we've dipped to a lower uh, place today, but there's only room to grow from here. So generally, I feel like the correction, at least in the private markets, feels like it's trickle started to really trickle through. I think if you take a, a step back and look at the macro picture in the public market, you know, SaaS multiples as an example, you know, we're back towards a reversion to the mean and the general sort of six to seven X range. That feels again that there's been a healthy sort of reversion in that market as well. And so these are again just clues for us to understand, you know, where we might be in the ecosystem. And if we look at some positive signals, you know, it's, it looks like some MA has started to pick up. We've got private sponsors buying up, you know, companies like Splunk and Coupa, New Relic at pretty healthy um, valuations and, and multiples. We've seen some M&A happen with, you know, more recently just Bloom and Atlassian. You know, last year, obviously, we had Sigma and Adobe. And I think we're likely just seeing, you know, the amount of money that's flowing into the AI private ecosystem with, you know, Amazon and Anthropic and Salesforce and many of these many of these folks, I think there will likely be more M&A on that front as well. And so overall, I think the picture is looking a little bit better than maybe it might have earlier this year. Um, Again, hard to call any bottom, but it does feel like the public-private markets have generally reverted to a more steady state. And again, there's some you know, rosy picture, uh, you know, appearing in the in the future here as we start to see some of this M&A activity pick up and some of these IPOs also start to hit the market. On so if I can imagine, you see a lot of investment opportunities every day as a venture capitalist. What criteria do you consider when evaluating early stage startups for potential investments and how do you identify the most promising opportunities? Yeah, look, fundamentally, every company, I believe, uh, should be and is treated different. You know, back to our conversation about pattern recognition, it can be a, it can certainly be a benefit, but it can also make you miss some things. But at a, at a high level, you know, the framework that I, I often think about is, you know, a couple of key things. The first being founder market fit. You know, and what I mean really by that is that is there a unique opportunity based on this founder or founder group's background, work that they've done in the past, uh, unfair advantage to some insights that gives them an ability to be able to have an edge in what they're trying to build and compete for. So I think when I think about founder market fit, I can think of, you know, Arvind Jain at Glean, who was uh, a founding engineer originally at um, Riverbed and also a, a co-founder of Rubik, two big infrastructure companies. He also spent over a decade of his time at 
Google as a distinguished fellow in the search function. You know, when he came and wanted to create Glean, you know, it was a perfect sort of founder market fit profile of somebody who has both infrastructure capacity as well as search capacity for a product that he was building that matched both of those two things in that space as an example. Or Cynthia Chen, who started a company called Kickoff, which is in the fintech space. She was a co-founder of Figure, which is a multi-billion dollar company in the HELOC space. She helped take On Deck public before that. She partnered with her co-founder, who was one of the senior engineers at Square and Facebook before that. Just a perfect combination of people with deep financial services expertise matched with consumer expertise. And so that's kind of the profile of the folks that I think really speak to that concept of what I mean by founder market fit, where you've got people who have that expertise to really outcompete anybody in that space. The second area that I really think a lot about is general surface area as it relates to market opportunity. And so a lot of people talk about TAM, but I really think about this more of a quantitative and qualitative exercise, the quantitative exercise of understanding how big the actual market is, how can we understand, you know, this market in particular that they're pursuing and, and where the opportunity lies, what's the dynamics within these this market, but also the adjacencies to that market. So that's what I mean by surface area. Many of the companies, especially when you partner with someone at that zero to one stage, they are uh, they have an idea of where they want to go, but that idea will change over time and it will adapt and, and, and morph. And so making sure that the market that they're attacking has enough adjacencies to it so that even if they iterate and move within that market space, they'll have an opportunity to create a really large outcome is really important and has a lot of implications for for their product and opportunity. And then the last bucket is, is really metrics. And we talked a lot about early signs of momentum, but in that zero to one phase, really trying to understand the tenor of what their initial validation has looked like and where is their real momentum and ability to pull a thread on that if you believe you keep pulling, there's going to be a lot of opportunity to grow and build a large company. And so hopefully that gives you a general sense of the high-level framework that I really look for in in early-stage companies. Could you share an example of a recent investment in an early-stage startup that has proven to be particularly interesting or successful? Yeah, look, there's uh, there's obviously a lot of... um, interesting early partnerships you know one in general i'd say i've been watching the applied ai space very closely i had the benefit of working at uh relate iq which was one of the first applied ai companies over 10 years ago now which ultimately got acquired by salesforce uh and so when i look at the opportunity in ai i think a lot about uh the bill gates quote in which he says you know we often overestimate the potential of technology in one year and underestimate the potential uh, over the course of 10 years. And I think a lot about that in the context of AI and what's happening right now. I think that we can all agree that there are some very fascinating step changes in AI and, and, and that are really relating to a fundamental shift in the way that not only do we develop software opportunities, but also potentially in the way that we work in organizations, businesses, industries at large. And so, you know, one of the companies that I had the benefit of working with at my prior firm called, it's a company called Glean, which started actually before the more recent AI boom. Uh, it fundamentally helps you access information across your company through a native workplace search function. You know, when we first invested in the company, you know, we had a thesis that as more and more apps penetrated the enterprise with over, you know, 250 applications in the average company these days, more and more data styles are actually being created. So your ability to actually access information as a business user across your own company was getting more and more inhibited. And so Glean was fundamentally helping to solve that problem by pairing, you know, an infrastructure problem with, you know, in terms of indexing all the content and unstructured data within an organization with a really powerful user interface and productivity tool that was business user facing um, to help 
users really get the information they needed across their workflow. And now with the advancements in AI, you're seeing them develop a lot of interesting products around helping supercharge the insights and ability to do work as they continue to uh, to scale their product vision over time. And so that's just been a compelling, you know, case in point in terms of what I'm seeing in the AI world and how some of these new changes are actually drastically improving the way the average business user is actually leveraging automation in their day-to-day. And so now at my firm Latitude, we're following similar theses across other areas in the enterprise where we think hard infrastructure problems coupled with a smart business application powered with AI can actually create drastically step changes in the way that we work across areas like data analysis, customer success, engineering productivity, and other similar large areas uh, in the enterprise and beyond. Ansaf, can you describe your approach to mitigating risks when investing in early stage companies and how do you help startups navigate challenges as they grow? It's a great question. I had a, a business school professor named Bob White, who's one of the co-founders of Bain Capital with Mitt Romney and others. And he always talked about each financing that an entrepreneur takes should be a key example of them de-risking one to three major things in their business at each stage. And so when I think really about the formation stage or that zero to one stage, I think the two main risks that you need to be de-risking as a founder are validation, essentially your early adoption and product in the market. And the second one is your team. And so as you think about the energy and time that you're spending as a founder at that time and that zero to one stage, most of your energy should be focused on uh, de-risking those two main components. Because at the Series A, the real question investors are asking is that now that we're starting to demonstrate and see some real adoption in the market, how can we understand if this will continue to grow or not? And then two, does this person and this team have the ability to continue to scale this product vision over time? And so I think that's fundamentally the main questions folks are asking at the Series A and and taking the risk on. And then by the time you get to Series B, it's really once you de-risk those two things, it's really about... Does, does this company have a flywheel that if we provided more cash and more fuel to the fire, this company will continue to grow in an exponential way? And so that's really what the Series B is trying to answer and, and understand and de-risk at that point. So depending on where you are on that timeline, um, those are the things that you should be focused on de-risking. And again, fundamentally at that zero to one stage, de-risking adoption and validation of your product and de-risking your team. Those are the two most important things. Ansaf, last question. What's a common mistake you see founders make when pitching to investors? Yeah, I'd say two main things. The first one being selecting your investor. And what I mean by that is, you know, there are a lot of VCs out there, but everyone is not going to be interested in your specific area, space, solution set. And so doing some work up front to really understand, does this individual or does this firm really have an interest in this space? Am I talking to the right person? Is this person have the ability to do deals or take deals forward within their organization? Um, can these investors be really good long-term investors? I think even more so back to our uh, beginning of our conversation, really understanding who your investor partner is and will they be long-term partners in this space with you, I think will be extremely important. And lastly, you know, do you, have you done your due diligence on these individuals and have you talked to other founders that they've worked with in the past? And so selection of your investor, I think, is really important and oftentimes uh, a missed opportunity, I think, for entrepreneurs to be more efficient with their time when they're thinking about top of funnel and creating a good process for their fundraising. And then the second one is really telling your story. And I think fundamentally, as we talked about earlier, you know, uh, founders need to be great evangelists of their product and really great storytellers. And that will last them 
throughout their uh, life cycle of their company. They'll always be having to sell to prospective hires, prospective investors, prospective customers. And so storytelling is a important part of this whole journey. And I think at the early stage when you're pitching an investor, uh, you're really trying to demonstrate that ability to be a strong storyteller and take this individual on a journey with you and say, this is the vision that I have for this company. And, uh, you know, we're here at point A right now, but this is where we're going to get to at point Z about the fruition of the story. And so being able to tell that in a narrative in a compelling way um, is an extremely important skill set and, and something that, uh, I think founders sometimes can overlook if they're too focused just on the metrics or the progress or a product piece of their story. That was Ansaf Karim, founder and managing partner of Latitude Capital. Such a huge pleasure having this conversation with you, Ansaf. We really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Jackson. I really appreciate you having me. Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all next week.